This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Merch Table was created by musicians to help other musicians sell directly to their fans. For 15 years, they've worked with a diverse range of artists to deliver an exceptional customer experience. From projects as big as top 10 billboard ranking pre-orders to jobs as small as helping a band sell their first t-shirt, Merch Table can do it all. Visit MerchTable.com. Today's show was recorded at the MotorCo Music Hall in Carborough, North Carolina. I had a distinguished panel of industry folks gathered to talk about how artists can get their music into the marketplace and what steps need to be taken to get from one level to the next. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. We're talking to Molly Newman of Kickstarter, Simon Perry of Reverb Nation, Hank Stockard of Red Eye Distribution, Rich D. Young of Sound Exchange, Carrie Colleton from Record Store Day, and Brian Burns from WUNC. Welcome to Motorco Music Hall in beautiful Durham, North Carolina. I'm Portia Sabin. I run the independent record label Kill Rockstars. And this is my podcast, The Future of What? It's a music business podcast. I'm going to let everybody go along here, all my guests, and just introduce themselves because I think that's probably the fastest way to do it. And I'll start with Molly Newman. Hi, I'm Molly Newman. I'm the head of music at Kickstarter. She's also a Kill Rockstars recording artist. So yay for that. (laughs) Simon. Uh, Hi, everybody. I'm the chief creative officer and the head of A&R at Reverb Nation, which is a Durham company. Woo-hoo. But of course, he's joining us from, where are you? I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. Ah, oh, traitor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Carrie Colleton, and I coordinate Record Store Day worldwide, and I work year-round with record stores in a coalition called the Department of Record Stores. Hi, I'm Hank Stockard. I'm the Director of Marketing for Red Eye Worldwide, based here in North Carolina. I'm Brian Burns. I'm the Music Librarian for WUNC Music, which is a music stream that launched from a local NPR affiliate about a little less than a year ago. I'm Rich DeYoung. I do artist relations at Sound Exchange in Washington, D.C. So this is a fabulous panel of experts. I'm excited to have everybody with me today. We are going to talk a little bit about, so you have started your band. Maybe you put out a record. Maybe you did it yourself, let's say. This is sort of about next steps like how do bands need to market themselves in the world today what this is not so much the panel of like how do you get to point a this is more like you're at point a let's move it to points b c and d well i'm interested in in the reverb nation perspective simon what is it exactly that you guys do with bands we've always seen ourselves really as the place that an artist would kind of really start really begin their career so you know, you've you started a band with a couple of couple of mates at college or something like that, and you want to start collecting email addresses to start working on your mailing list. You want to just really start thinking about your press kit, you know, your electronic press kit. You want to start thinking about putting a website up, and so you want to use a web builder, you know. And instead of kind of going round and you know 
20 bucks a month on MailChimp and 25 bucks a month on some some web builder. And, you know, the idea of Reverb Nation was that an artist at the beginning of their career can do all of those things in one place. And, you know, we worked really hard as a company to come up with a, a suite of tools that would allow an artist in the sort of, let's say, the digital age, the post-internet age, to manage their fan relationships online. And I think pretty quickly we realized that, you know, what I can't I always get it wrong. You know, the old saying about give a man a fishing rod and he'll eat for life versus, you know, teach him how to fish. There's some, <laughs> there's some phrase anyway, but we realized that the tools was only, you know, giving them tools was only half the, the picture, you know, a bit like a cigarette with no light or a light, no cigarette, right? It was kind of pretty useless without helping artists actually go out and proselytize their music and acquire more fans. And so really artists are, are coming to the attention of labels and publishers through us. And I think that's since I joined the company kind of five or six years ago, that's been really my focus of, of trying to sort of figure out how, we can get artists who don't have the usual access to, you know, a friend of a friend who works at EMI in, in London. You know, how, if they're great, if they're really good prospects, how can we get them in front of, of better opportunities? And so as a company, I know that was a sort of bit long-winded answer, but we really do feel that it's, it's tools, so technology, a way to manage your career, ways to grow your fan base, and then ultimately ways to really rise to the top of, of the pyramid and get and get noticed. Yeah, I think the name of the game, I mean, I, this whole day is going to be about, you know, like Porsche's rules for 2017 music business. <laughs> and we already spoke about a little bit. The thing that I think is our theme probably for this panel is fan engagement, because I really feel like we're really seeing that as a significant aspect of, of the music business. And, and it's, it's really become clear that that's what musicians need to do is engage with their fan base because it can make all the difference between having a career and not having a career. So Molly, you work at Kickstarter and Kickstarter has actually had a great deal of success outside of the music realm. There are you guys, I mean, like the video games, <laughs> yeah. I had no idea about, you know, these board wonderful games. So board not even, games. Not even video. It's there, there are huge communities that use Kickstarter to discover the creative projects that they want. So music has had though the the biggest number of successful projects. So we've had over 25,000 projects that have been successful in music and that's the the largest bucket across all the 15 categories. So, you know, most of our projects are raising less than $20,000 in music. So it's really very complimentary to the type of clients that Simon has at, at Reverb Nation, you know, people who are getting their start. They have some community. They want to make their first record. And it's a sort of unifying point. And I think that's what, you know, I think there, you know, there's obviously lots of opportunities, you know, people come and raise money for venues and record stores and all sorts of different kinds of complementary businesses. But the, the core of what we do is help artists who are, you know, just beginning their careers. And I think, because of all the different kinds of projects that we have and a sort of international reach, uh, we've been able to, you know, develop some credibility. And, and the other area that I, I think about a lot is for genres that are not, you know, sort of mainstream. So jazz and classical, we have, we had a Grammy winner in, who had a Kickstarter project in jazz this year. Last year, we had a nomination in contemporary classical. So those are the areas that I think that we can also serve the music industry that, you know, many labels don't have 
resources to develop and nurture those communities, but we can sort of provide a place for them to grow as well. Another place that we've seen a ton of fan engagement is in packaging and what's actually being offered. So Record Store Day is a perfect example of, of how that really has, like it started kind of small, but it's just taken off. It's, yeah, it's grown tremendously. And the beauty of Record Store Day is it celebrates three things that make up a record store, three groups of people. It celebrates the people who run the record store, the people who shop at the record store, and the people who make the music that ultimately ends up at the record store. It celebrates all three of those things. And without any one of those groups, record stores wouldn't survive. And just my own personal opinion, the world of music wouldn't be as great if there weren't as many record stores or places where you could go to talk to other people about music. I mean, if you're talking about fan engagement, it's fantastic to have a great Facebook list or a really large email list, but it's also great to talk to other people who are into the band you're into when you run into them at the record store. And the one aspect of Record Store Day that's really grown to the point where we've had to kind of like put some capacitors on it is the special releases. And the very first year there were maybe 12 releases and I just, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary this year and I went back and, and found all these, you know, emails that were going back and forth and the final list and it was like 12 releases. And now this year we were at 350 and it has gone higher and in other countries in the UK it's gone to 500, which again, that's a little high. We're going to bring those down. But <laughs> that is because there are so many bands, so many levels at so many genres that want to be part of this, that want to get in touch with their fans through these special pieces at these special places. And that speaks to literally every level of artist. Because one of the things Record Store does really beautifully is on a local level and a regional level for those artists who maybe are, like you were saying, at point A. It's a, it's a fantastic resource for them, the Record Store as a whole, but also Record Store Day. Most of the Record Store's don't have national touring artists playing in their store on Record Store Day. They have four or five regional or local bands, and it is a massive party, and everybody's loving it. <laughs> and it's all these people there to celebrate their local bands who, you know, in 10 years may be the national touring artists who may come back because they've recognized what the record stores and the people who shop there are able to do for them. And it's, I think it's also created this really cool thing for music fans where it, it gives you a benchmark for, you know, this is the day that, that stuff's coming to come out. And so people get really excited when the lists come out of what's going to yeah. be on sale. Yeah, that's been, the, that's been a really crazy thing for me is we have three days where we announce things, I guess. We have in January where we announce the date, although it's the third Saturday in April. It's not hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, anything to do a press release. And then... We announce our ambassador in February, and then in March, we announce the list. And I do all the social media and all the incoming and outgoing communication for Record Store Day. And the number of people who just wait for this literal list on a website, it's, it's very exciting and a little intimidating and kind of awesome all around. But yes, they're waiting to see... What is my, and for months beforehand, they'll be tweeting at their band, their favorite bands, like, you need to do this, you need to do this. And so it's, it's really nice to see that in this day and age, all three of those groups that Record Store Day celebrates are really into the idea of creating this special thing for this special day in these special places. So Hank, you 
work more with labels because that's just how distribution works. But labels are, we're the ones who are on the front end of exactly this kind of like, we are trying to help our bands engage with fans. We're going to do it through special packaging, through exciting stuff that we're trying to think up of how to do it. So how do you guys on a daily basis manage our expectations? Because we're like, we're going to come to you and we're like, we're going to make this the hugest, craziest thing. And you're like, chill out, man. No, that's a, that's a great question. And for folks that may be a little less familiar with Red Eye, we work with a great mix of labels. Obviously, Kill Rock Stars, Yep Rock Records, Tap Tone, Warp, Ninja Tune, Barsook, you know, really across the sort of sonic spectrum. And I think that creates a unique challenge for us in that there's really no cookie cutter model for how we approach what it is that we do. So a lot of our conversations are interesting because you, you, you bring up the point where typically at Red Eye, we're dealing with the label who is dealing with the artist. So we, we love those conversations. We love to think outside the box. We like to try and figure out what can we do to make this release special. It's not always the easiest conversation. Sometimes we have ideas that are just a little further beyond what our budgets and capabilities may be. But I think on a more granular level, a lot of what we deal with are, you know, there's a term in the industry that gets bandied around a lot, which is best practices. I've been with Red Eye for a while, and one of the, the things that you find when you've been in a job for a while is you collect lots of things, and it's always fun to discover artifacts from your past. And I found one the other day, which was a uh, Word doc entitled, How to Create a MySpace Page. Right, you laugh now, but at the time, it seemed like a really important piece of the puzzle. How do the artists market, right? There's this thing called MySpace, and the artists need to be there. And we had to sort of work with them to teach them how to do that. And the, the, the sort of concept of best practices has exploded in the last few years. You know, it went from, okay, you need a Twitter, and now you need a Facebook page, and now you need a Snapchat and an Instagram and so forth. And it's a really intimidating prospect for any artist to, how am I going to create all these properties? How am I going to manage all these properties? What is my voice? What's my strategy? And it can get really overwhelming really quickly. So I think what we at Red Eye try and do is work with our label partners and their artists by proxy to sort of demystify this process a little bit, add a little bit of focus, uh, look at what the goals for the project may be, uh, and really try and help guide the hand so it doesn't seem like such a big and scary process for approaching how are you going to market your release and you know it's it's even expanded now and the world of streaming has ushered in a whole new thing you you need a spotify profile and a apple music artist profile and you know it it, it gets it balloons really quickly and i think that the ask for what is being put on an artist's plate has never been higher than it is in 2017 for what we come to the labels and we come to the artists and we need you to do these things because we're trying to have success in the digital world and the physical world. And there's, there's a lot of components, you know, it's the, 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 the concept of this sort of release cycle has kind of gone out the window. You know, you, you kind of have to be a 365 day a year artist and have that presence consistently to have that fan engagement and really use all this glut of data that comes back from all these services to really, be informed about who your audience is and the best way to serve them. And do they like videos or do they like deluxe bundle packaging or, you know, like 
how do you do it and how do you how do you manage to wrangle all this data into something that helps inform you as an artist about where you should be putting your efforts because you can have the biggest staff and you can be on a major label but you know ticking all the boxes is nearly impossible nowadays so it's really about making informed marketing decisions and really finding out what the goals are for your release and catering a marketing plan to to meet those goals and it's not easy and it takes a lot of work and we're not afraid to fail uh, it happens time to time but we try and never take a sort of cookie cutter approach again we look at every project as a unique opportunity for creative marketing and we we try and make that happen so that was a long answer to a short question. I have to say 2017 is not the year to get into the music business if you're not super creative. And that's not that's not usually a problem for the artists. The artists usually have like no trouble. That's usually a problem for like me. Like there are days when I just want to go back to bed where I'm just like, I can't come up with another cool idea. Like I'm just going to hide under the table. Because, you know, it's like it's just endless. There's like always more things that you need to think of another cool way to do something else. I'm just going to say all those cool ideas have to be implemented and there's layers and layers of details and decisions and things and people to be coordinated with for every one of those cool ideas. It's, it's not just, we just thought of this great thing and it's going to happen and it's going to be fantastic. It's and now we have to work really hard and be very dedicated and focused and make that cool thing happen. And a lot of times that doesn't get communicated to some of the people it needs to get communicated to. Yeah, I think you make a good point. And, you know, one of the things that, of course, Portia, you've heard us sort of reference is the concept of time, the long lead. These things take time to set up. You can't, you can't come in at the 11th hour and really move the needle in the way that you used to be able to because there's so many moving pieces to any campaign. So we, we really actively work with the labels and the artists that we represent to far out ahead. We've got a big release coming on Monday, a big announcement that we're really excited, but we've been having this conversation going back for probably six months just to get to the announce. This isn't even the street date. This is just the announce for the release and all the pieces of the puzzle that have to come together and the ideas, all the things Carrie's talking about. We have to have all that figured out before we even tell the world that this record is coming. So time and you know the, the strategic planning is such a part of marketing more so than I think it's ever been because there's so many ways to come at a release, be it digital, physical, you know, you, you have to sort of map it all out and you got to have the team put together to make it all happen or, you know, the thing can really fall flat on its face. Yeah. You're making me tired. Uh, <laughs> just thinking about this, Brian. So radio is even more important these days in some ways than ever before. Sure. And, and especially as sort of a part of an overall marketing campaign, because there are, you know, many, many people who still discover, do their music discovery through the radio. Right. So what are you seeing, like what, in terms of trends these days with what, what's coming through your, what's coming across your desk? Gosh, I guess the station that I'm working on is a, is an offshoot of the local NPR station. We, I've, I've had very little time to gauge the audience because because it's such a new thing. But what we try to focus on local artists primarily, but we also incorporate what's popular on like AAA radio. And what I'm seeing, I guess, you know, as far as all of the packaging and stuff and record store day stuff is, we don't see that. We just, I, I was kind of appreciating my role hearing about the design of all these special releases and stuff because it's like, I don't even think about that at work. I just think about the music itself 
I get digital file. I get I still get some physical. I get CDs in the mail, but most like I'd say ninety percent of the music that we play is has been solicited just as MP3 files or WAV files. So it's it yeah that was very stressful to hear about all of that, and that's something I don't have to look at, and I really appreciate that. So as far as what we actually, I guess what was what was. Well, what are you guys? What are you guys doing? Are you are you having local artists play live in studios? Like, what or is that part of your? We we have not on on the music stream. So the music discovery stream, which is what it's called, which I work on. We don't have that. We don't even have DJs. We have local artists. We have not just local artists, but all kinds of artists come in and introduce their songs, and that kind of serves as the DJ break. So it makes me feel very grounded and connected to the music community because I am constantly looking for, since we have no DJs, we really need to get a lot of different voices on the station. So I'm constantly asking artists who will come in and introduce their songs. And it makes me excited when they do because it's like another voice. And I I guess because I'm listening to it so often, it's just nice to hear a different voice every now and then. And that provides, that provides the artist's audience with a connection point. I mean, that is the sort of thing that people love, like fans love that. Yeah, I think this, like the WUNC has a certain reputation. It's one of the biggest NPR affiliates. And it's like outside of major cities, it's the biggest NPR affiliate in the country. So it has a reputation that puts a lot of great, pre- like it's a good sort of pressure to have on it. But there's a sort, sort of built-in audience that you kind of want to keep happy. And I think they do appreciate hearing artists that they may not particularly be familiar with introducing their songs and be like, oh, I didn't know. And we like to have the artists say like, oh, I, you know, I'm so-and-so from Carboro. And a lot of listeners who aren't as in tune with the music industry are like, I live in Carboro. This, this is a great song and this guy's my neighbor. So that's exciting. So yeah, we, I think we like to focus on that, the community involvement. It's very much, yeah, it's, it's a much smaller scale operation than, it's big, but it's small. It, try, it's, it, try, it feels small. Well, and it's got a wide reach. That I think that's the thing about radio. That's absolutely true. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we have listened, and I we have I've received emails from people that don't live in North Carolina that have said they've checked out the station, and I'm like, I don't. That's great. I hope. That, I don't know how big the audience is because of things like that, but yeah, that's the the wonder of radio, I suppose. Machines are Thank you.
was Hospital Nights by New Dog. Are you an emo fan? Then check out the Washed Up Emo podcast. For the last 10 years, Washed Up Emo has championed the unknown and forgotten of emo and post-hardcore through their website. On the podcast, host Tom Mullen talks with everyone from American football to Jimmy Eat World. Start from the beginning or download the latest episode at washedupemo.com. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Molly Newman of Kickstarter, Simon Perry of Reverb Nation, Hank Stockard of Red Eye Distribution, Rich D. Young of Sound Exchange, Carrie Colleton from Record Store Day, and Brian Burns from WUNC. So Rich, you are with Sound Exchange, and it's shocking to me that anyone doesn't know what Sound Exchange does in this day and age, but I still think it's important to reiterate it just in case we can catch one or two of those outliers. Right. So Sound Exchange is a, uh, it's a performance rights organization, and what we do is we uh, collect and distribute digital performance royalties for satellite, internet, and cable radio airplay. So basically how it works is you've got digital streamers, you know, like XM Sirius, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Last.fm, and they pay us licensing fees to be able to stream the material that they, they air, and then we take that money, and then we pay out the feature performer and the owner of the master sound recording that gets the airplay. So we've become like a, a, a big revenue stream for whoever gets digital streaming airplay, now that everything's gone to streaming and nobody really buys CDs or downloads anymore. My job there basically is to track down artists and let them know that we have unclaimed money for them. A lot of people don't realize that they can make money because they're getting airplay through that digital streaming. And I have to let them know that there's a big money source there for them. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, 10 years ago when Sound Exchange started, I felt like everybody was really wary. You know, they, they'd get an email that said, hey, we have money for you. And yeah, people I mean, would be like, ah. Right. I dealt with that a lot. You know, when I started working there, not as much anymore because Sound Exchange has become, you know, a bigger player in, in, this, in the digital streaming space. But I would send out emails to people and let them know that I had royalties for them. And, and they'd be like, what, are you calling from Nigeria? You know, it's like you know, right. out of the blue. People don't expect to hear from somebody that they have a lot of money sitting there. So right. it's not as much of a problem anymore these days because people have become aware of sound exchange. But it still takes some convincing once in a while, especially with like legacy artists who aren't really familiar with, you know, the, the digital streaming medium. And they don't realize that they have money sitting there. I was going to ask you if there's still some holdouts, some big holdouts. Oh, yeah. It's like, uh, like example, uh, three of the f- former members of uh, Leonard Skinner, they're all deceased now. But I've, you know, I've contacted their management companies and their estates and let them know that there's money sitting there. But you know, sometimes they're still worried of like, responding to me. And it's, I think that we still have like three, $400,000 for some sitting, like, wow. sitting there. I yeah. feel like the next move for a sound exchange, look, I had a marketing idea, is to get, <laughs> get one of those giant checks that you, you know, uh, we've publisher's done that. clearinghouse used to, and just like show up at their door. Uh, we've done that, you know, with people that, you know, that we finally managed to get through to. And then, you know, we say, well, we want to give you a big, big check and let you know and let people know that there's, you know, that there's money sitting there. 
Yeah. Take yeah. a camera crew. Yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah. That's, that's marketing. <laughs> right. And we blur out the, we blur out the amount because we don't <laughs> want people to know how much they're getting. But yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was like a twelve dollar check. Right. <laughs> a giant check for a dollar fifty. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe we won't do that. So I'm interested, Simon. Reverb Nations. One of the interesting things that you guys do is that you create you provide these opportunities for artists to get into different, like you were saying, Sony ATV, like these, these connections that you can potentially make. I mean, in order to do that and to have success, it strikes me that you would need to be doing some education on your end so that you're, when the, when the bands are coming to try to take up advantage of those opportunities, they're actually prepared because obviously Sony and those people are not going to be happy if, if people show up and they're like, we don't know what we're doing and we've only got three songs. You know, that's yeah, not what they're going to want. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think from the artist's perspective, I think the idea now, and, and it's funny that there are so many different ways to talk about this, but, you know, in the sort of the streaming era, the idea that, you know, one song will connect because it goes on an on official Spotify playlist, you know, when somebody then goes to, you know, whoever it is, maybe it's Sony ATV or maybe it's a, a fan who, who could be somebody that buys a ticket or a t-shirt, you know, they go and investigate you. You know, we all do it, don't we? You know, we hear a song you like or someone sends like you click through. And actually, I've been doing some sort of pretty anecdotal, so not very scientific polling for the past couple of months, both here and in the UK. And it sounds like most fans, people that consider themselves to be to be fans, it used to be Facebook that was the first place people went to. And now people are starting to tell me that Instagram is the first place that they'll look for an artist, which is interesting because... You wouldn't necessarily think if you're an artist, oh, I need to really make sure my Instagram is, 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 is up to snuff. But yeah, I think that, you know, having one song that people like is amazing and to cut through the noise at all is really difficult. You know, as, as Hank was saying, it takes this huge, you know, we're, we're doing a campaign at the moment with New West Records and we, you know, all the things that Hank talks about, you know, there's a digital guide, there's PR in the UK, in the, in the US, there's all these different different components, you know, Paradigm and an agent in the UK and trying to get touring at the same time as the, as the you know, it's, it's, you know, what Hank does every day kind of thing. And it's just, it's staggering, right? And you can still end up not connecting with an audience, you know, and, and, and a song can be put on a Spotify playlist and, and can, can connect but you're right. I think artists have to be ready. They have to be ready for that kind of, you know, that lightning to strike, that gold, that gold to strike. And I think the, I want to really want to agree with something else that Hank said as well, which is that I think there was this perception of sort of overnight and things being being really, really quick and someone will discover me. And I keep coming up against this with artists again and again and again that they think they don't have to kind of, you know, do the work and do all the tough stuff and the building and the and, and you you do, you know, Hank is absolutely right. You know, it's a slow build. It's a, it's a pledge campaign, you know, and I'd love, uh, Molly, I'd love to hear about, you know, where, how artists should think about pledge campaigns in terms of, you know, where does that come in terms of building a fan base? You know, can I, can I launch a pledge campaign if I'm an artist, if I'm at the very beginning of my career before I've built an email list? Probably not. You know, or, or, you know, as again, the new, new West that we're working with, we're doing a pledge campaign with the artist. So that's a signed artist. And I'm sure, you know, Hank, some of his artists does pledge campaigns as well. You know, how should sort of artists at the beginning of their careers think about that? Is that, is it useful? 
Yeah, I mean, at, at Kickstarter, you know, absolutely, uh, we have, I mean, the, the bulk of our projects are artists that have yet to, you know, really actualize their audience, but they need some resources. So, you know, it's a very sort of straightforward vision. They need to record. They need to have something to use to grow their base. And as you were just saying, I, mean, I think that the learning and experience and the sort of the hard work that's required to, I mean, you can't have zero fans and be successful, but you can have 150 and raise $5,000. And I think that one of the things that, you know, has been, I've been at Kickstarter since January of 2016. And prior to that, I was on the board of, of Sound Exchange, actually, so I, and have worked with many of you in, in different capacities over the years, most importantly, Portia. But I think that, uh, you know, I, I what I really am trying to build is an opportunity for artists to see not just how the finances and, and the, the money that they need to make the thing that they're trying to do, but but having this place to unify even their small community, to run a campaign, to understand the hard work that's required to message, you know, at Kickstarter, it's all or nothing. So if you're not successful, you don't get anything and can sort of be inherently anxiety ridden. But I think what we know and we hear all the time is that when you do have that success and engagement directly with your community, it's that much more meaningful. And this year we've had a couple of artists who, you know, have many records in their career, Ted Leo and Kate Nash, namely, who have done campaigns with us. And have been, you know, in the label system and, and, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't successful in the long term, but they're at a point in their career where their fans really want them to make something. And the feedback that I got from, from both of those artists was, was so incredible. I mean, they really felt like it sort of reinvigorated them creatively. And I don't think that people generally consider that as, as part of a Kickstarter. They might think, oh, it's, you know, hat in hand. I'm a little bit more, you know, it, it seems like begging, but. I think where we are in the industry and, and the requirement and the sort of having, you know, Ted was able to raise $160,000 to record and, and manufacture records from about 3,000 fans. And so when it comes out in August and, you know, is distributed through, you know, uh, one of the, the partner companies that, that we have available, you know, there's still the streaming world. There's there's still online radio. There's all of the other revenue streams that are much more and obviously live and touring that are, you know, we can talk forever about, you know, the pie and how money is distributed in, in music now. But to be able to have that amount up front was really, really um, compelling and, and meaningful to him. And, and so, you know, that's where I think the opportunity is. I, I really believe that if we are able to help artists as they're getting their start, there'll be a better investment. And I'm sure that's similar to, to the Reverb Nation philosophy, that once you have these skills and tools for, for people, that the labels that are on Red Eye, um, Kill Rock Stars, there's just a better sense of, you know, you're not rolling the dice as much. And I think that's a, a, a requirement for our industry at this point. I mean, there's a, a report that the IFPI and WIN issue every year about the amount that's invested by labels in, you know, in comparison to other categories of business. In the music business, I think it's like 24% of the revenue overall is put into A&R and, and the equivalent of research and development. And it's higher than any other category of business and those businesses make a lot more money. So, you know, it just, that's not sustainable. 
And if if our company and, and others can help artists really have tools and, and expertise, then I think that that's going to be ultimately a lot healthier for everybody. That's such a good point. And I, I feel like the through line with these three companies, Kickstarter, Reverb Nation, and, and Red Eye, are, are that in addition to the services you provide, you also provide this education that's really critical because it helps people understand and navigate the business. And you know, the whole reason I do this podcast is to try to help people understand and navigate the business because it's way too difficult. You can't just walk into it cold one day and be like, and next week I'm playing to 5,000 people at, you know, some fabulous place. It doesn't work that way. Like we wish it did on some level, but it, it really doesn't. And so the best we can do is give everybody our expertise on a regular basis. Portia, can I ask um, Hank a quick follow-up question to something he, something he said because it was really yes, interesting. Yes, please. Fire away. You talked about the the way that release schedules have changed. You know, there used to be this idea that, you know, a band would tour, then they would go into the studio, then they would make a record, they'd spend six months setting it up, then they would tour to support that album. You know, whereas now there is this idea, you know, with songs being the star and and rather than, than albums. Can you talk a little bit about how you're seeing that shift in terms of the way that art, where artists are having success, not just, you know, making an album, releasing it, touring, but really, as you say, trying to be sort of omnipresent. You know, a lot of artists are doing things like putting out, you know, releasing a song a month, you know, for 12 months and then putting an album out. Can you talk about how you've seen that change from your distributor perspective? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And there's definitely been a sort of shift in the way that we sort of approach the concept of marketing a release, you know, it's not that long ago where, you know, there was typically no music available prior to street date. And we've seen that, that sort of street date wall just come crumbling down with the, the glut of data that we're able to collect when things go out into the world. You know, the concept of the pre-release single, the instant download with pre-release purchase in the digital world, you know, it's, it's become almost essential because what you can do rather than than sort of putting all your eggs in one basket on this this singular street date is to create a campaign that can stretch in many months in some cases you know typically starting with the announce with the single going out early and then you know potentially one two three more singles from the record being sort of strategically released prior to the street date so that when you sort of get the street date you've engaged fans on multiple, you know, actionable points, but you, you're also collecting data along the way, which ones are working, you know, it, it can really inform your strategy about what you're going to do post street date based on what you see happening. So there's definitely been a sort of seismic shift towards this, this long lead. like we were talking about the time, you know, what are you doing prior to street date? And, you know, I, I think, you know, this is applicable. Obviously, we work with some more household name kind of artists, but this, this is applicable all the way down to local bands. You know, I'm very, uh, we, this, this came up earlier today, but we, we live in a very rich and diverse music environment here in the Triangle. And, you know, I'm, I've been really lucky to live here for almost 20 years and get to know a lot of the artists. And, you know, I, I like to get together with these people and sit down and, talk about their music and their strategy you know that these are mainly artists that are not signed to labels but i think the lessons that you know we preach from 
you know, red eye to our labels are equally as applicable to local artists. You know, it's, it's have a plan, think long term, think early, think post release. How are you going to build a campaign? But I think, you know, to, to the point that you're, you're, you're bringing here is, you know, that, that early pre-release single is really going to happen way sooner than it's ever happened before. You know, I guess probably the earliest thing would have been radio, you know, servicing a single to radio. And that was sort of the outset of a campaign, the chance for people, you know, I can, I can remember back when I was in high school and when MTV was still a thing. And the first time I saw a video on MTV and I went into the record store to buy the record and they didn't have it because it wasn't out yet. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? It's not out yet. It's, but it's, they're playing the video and it just sort of like blew my mind. But, you know, I think that that's where we are. You know, it's the accessibility of small micro campaigns and the ability to create marketing around a single and then create marketing around the second pre-release single and then potentially the third and then have a whole, you know, wealth of data that you can sort of circle back to at street date. And, you know, so phase one is not street date. Street date may be phase three at this point because it's, it's the time, it's the strategy, it's how are we gonna sort of capitalize on these micro events being the pre-release singles that's really become a sort of really focus point for what we do at Red Eye. I kind of want to add on to what you were saying. It's like, I, I want to make clear that, you know, with sound exchange in terms of like, you know, planning for the future, you know, as a, as an artist or label, you don't, you don't have to have accrued royalties with us in order to sign up with us. You should sign up with us, you know, even before you, you, know, you get a product out. So in the event that you do get streaming in the future, you'll have an account in place with us and you'll get paid. You know, you don't have to have an established artist to be signed up with us and, and, and earn royalties. So, And that's part of the education process. You know, I, I still to this day talk to bands every day and say, you know, what PRO are you a member of? Have right. you signed up with SoundExchange? Right. And they give me a completely blank look. Right. And then I explain what that <laughs> means. But every artist needs to know these things because this is all about how you build your business. Right. And I think probably the last question before we take some questions, because you guys are a good brain trust. I want to make sure everyone has a chance to ask you questions. One thing that's really changed, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years is what a successful music career looks like. So I kind of want to get your feedback. What do you guys think a successful music career looks like today? I, I know so many musicians. I Like Hank said, we live in a pretty, we're pretty lucky to live in this area where we have a lot of people that I know personally that are musicians and who have made a career out of it or are making a career out of it. And then there's also a lot of people who still make music, still travel, still perform music, but it's not their day to day. And they're completely happy with that. And I think the definition of a successful music career just has to be, what are you happy with? If, if you're not happy that you still have to go to a job during the day and you play your music on the weekends or your vacation is the two-week tour with your band, then you need to get a plan and address that and, and do what you have to do, do the work to make it not the case anymore. But I think you can still be successful. There are local successes. There are regional successes. There are national successes. There are a lot of musicians. I mean, there are more records coming out now, more music being made now than perhaps there ever have been. And I don't think that would be the case if people weren't happy at the various levels they're at. Still striving to get higher and do better. But I really think that's, that's such a personal just 
decision for each individual musician. I'm happy playing shows on the weekends. I'm happy playing in the garage with my buddies. I'm, you know, whatever that level is, work hard to, to get to whatever that level happens to be because there's so many of them. Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, working with Yeprock Records, they have a lot of, I guess, what we term legacy artists, and these are artists that have literally made decade-spanning careers, and I think, you know, one that stands out in my mind is Robin Hitchcock, you know, but across the board, I think what you find when you meet and you work with these people is these are people that obviously made amazing music, but they were also very vested in the business side of, you know, understanding their artist rights, how to build a career, how to build a repertoire of music that they would be able to live off of the rest of their life. And it, it's challenging and it requires strategy and it requires some, you know, a long, long plan of how, how do I want to do this for the rest of my life? And, you know, a guy like Robin Hitchcock is not playing giant arenas at this point, but he's made a living of it. And he's a very smart and happy an amazing human being, but he's also very business savvy. He understands his craft equally as well as he understands the business behind his craft. And I think those are the people that tend to be able to do this again for decades. And I think, you know, across all the artists that I've worked with along the way, that seems to be the current thread that I see among all these people is they understand the music, but they also understand the industry, right? It's the music business. Half of it is business, right? So. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, make sure you have all your ducks lined up, you know, when it comes to royalties, make sure that you sign up with SoundExchange, make sure, you know, for digital streaming, make sure that you sign up with, uh, you know, ASCAP or BMI or CSAC when it, comes to, when it comes to songwriting publishing royalties, make sure you sign up with, you know, Harry Fox when it comes to mechanicals, you know, and it, it, it doesn't cost anything to sign up with any of those organizations at all. I would just agree with everybody else. I think the playing field changes so rapidly that it really is setting a certain goal is probably pretty difficult as a musician because what one deemed a certain success five years ago might just not be a thing anymore. Like having your record in a store might have been a big deal 10 years ago, whereas now having your record on Bandcamp getting a bunch of downloads is more of a big deal. It's just, it's best to, yeah, just have fun <laughs> and be happy with yourself. And just keep keep at it. I would say tenacity is very satisfaction is. Molly, did you want to jump in? One of the things that I think is successful. So one example is an artist who's able to to sort of have the fortitude and leverage and experience to have the right deal, a deal that's a partnership with the companies that they want to be with. So I think, you know, Kill Rock Stars and, and many of the Red Eye labels are really good examples of that, where it's not just straight royalties. It's really, you know, you're you're mutually benefiting from the success. And, and you know, I think some of the label deals historically have really been upside down in terms of, of royalties and revenue splits. And I think that, you know, so I really see examples of, of success where artists, you know, have ownership and stakes in their masters and have, you know, partners that are able to expand them into the market as really, you know, the best case. I think you're, you're right. It used to be very binary, right? It used to be either you, you know, became very successful or you kind of not. And I think now it, I've definitely seen it and it definitely is possible now to sort of be, you know, either sustainably or to pass through a kind of, you know, a, a middle class state of being an artist, you know, which means that 
you don't need to 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 be you know sending your demo tape in and hoping some a and r guy is going to pluck you out of obscurity you know the, the the tools and the access are available to all artists now and and i know that that was the initial initially the great dream that the internet was going to democratize right access for all artists and they were going to disintermediate labels they're all going to disappear I mean, look that didn't happen you know but i do think that artists can start now and in many in many cases continue on their own but i think all the things that, that that everyone has said and Portia, what you said that you know artists have to think about themselves as businesses they have to educate themselves you know the idea that you can just be a genius and sit in your bedroom and some you know manager with a big fat cigar is going to come in and go okay i can make you famous you know i don't just that's not going to happen you know so I, I think that it's 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 you know the most important thing is to make sure you write a great song period Otherwise, the rest of it is just, you know, you're marketing something that's no, there's no point marketing it. So once you've done that, you know, and you think that your music is great and you want to share it, then then educate yourself. You know, places like Reverb Nation, places like Kickstarter, as you say, PROs. And the PROs are really helpful, particularly in North America. The PROs won't like me for saying that, but, you know, BMI and CSAC, you know, and ASCAP, they, they are really great with people starting out. They have showcases in all, all over the country. You know, engage with the local your local chapter and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's possible now. was Perennial Bulb by Milagres. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. 
You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Molly Newman of Kickstarter, Simon Perry of Reverb Nation, Hank Stockard of Red Eye Distribution, Rich D. Young of Sound Exchange, Carrie Colleton from Record Store Day, and Brian Burns from WUNC. All righty. Well, can we get questions? Anyone have any questions? We have a mic right here. So you, you've been expressing that, you know, you're, you're kind of speaking to artists when you're saying this, but I'm just curious, particularly with Kickstarter and Reverb Nation, how often with successful projects are you dealing directly with the artists and how often are you dealing with management or some other professional that may have a broader view? And we're talking about so many different areas that artists are supposed to be involved with, but they're also having to create and tour and do all these other things. So are we really, it's gotten so complicated. How realistic is it for just an artist to go through this process? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great question. I think nine times out of 10, I would say we're dealing with managers or even, or even honestly, you know, the artist girlfriend who is really interested in it and, you know, not Janine, but hopefully, but, you know, someone who's really interested in it and who is prepared to sort of do the social media during the day. But yeah, but, but I think that artists have to do it on their own until they matter enough that someone's going to put their own time in to help them, to partner with them. I, I would say that probably for, for Kickstarter, it's a larger majority of artists that don't have teams. Like I said, we have you know, over 90% of our projects are, you know, raising less than $20,000. So they're generally really early in their career. And so, you know, I think in, in most of those cases, it's probably the artist, you know, directly handling the business. But even some of our, our bigger profile campaigns, you know, it's very artist driven, even if there is someone on the team. And then, you know, we have over around 500 projects that are live at any given point. So most of those we don't engage with on a one-to-one basis anyway. They're they're using sort of the tools and the platform. And that's what we're we're really trying to build as many benefits and and as much, you know, expertise into that experience so that artists can be successful in a much higher rate. I think that's a really great question. And from a label perspective, we definitely have artists on our label who have management, but I have always personally preferred to deal with the artist. I think you get a better result when you deal directly with the artist because they actually understand what's what they're doing and what they're agreeing to. That's always a, you know, when there's a third party and someone's agreeing to something, you're always running that risk that six years from now, you're going to get this screaming phone call about what did I, and you're like, but you agreed. Oh, ah, you know, it, it can be <laughs> harrowing. But I also think, I also think at an absolute baseline level, even if you have management or someone helping you or a girlfriend or anything, you have to at least be understand that you're in the business, right? Artists have to understand that they're in a business. What we can't do anymore is the the people who say, I just do this because I love it. And I don't have, there's no, I, this isn't a business to me and I don't care if I never make a cent. And it's like, great, that's fantastic. Stay home and, <laughs> you know, don't bring the rest of us into your wacky world because that's not what this is. Like there is in fact a business aspect. You have to at least be aware of that. And uh, any more questions? My first question actually is, and this is for Carrie, and you guys didn't touch on this, but like semi-recently, the release date of records switched to a Friday from a Tuesday. And I'm just wondering from you know sales and marketing perspective of records, what has been the impact of that? I think fairly universally when we talk to people, the records used to come out on Tuesdays. And then in some parts of the world, they come out on Mondays. Sometimes they come out on Fridays. And, and we are, everyone I think was very in favor of 
a global day. A lot of people didn't think Friday, which is the new day, was the right day for a lot of reasons. And for record stores, which is what I can speak to internally, there are a lot of issues with it being on a Friday. And from a marketing standpoint, there are a lot of issues with it being on a Friday. The baseline of which is you're competing to get on NPR shows with everything that every movie that's opening on Friday and every sporting event that's happening over the weekend and all the camping trips that people are taking over the weekend. That's not, they're not necessarily all talking about I mean, I could go on forever about Friday Street Date. I really could. <laughs> the, I do, I do, I will say that sometimes an artist who isn't nationally distributed or who is able to set their own deals in terms of this, there's no law. Go ahead and release it on a different date, you know? You'd probably get a little more love from almost everybody in the marketing world because uh, you're giving them on a Tuesday or a Wednesday something cool to talk about that people can then go out and either download or stream or buy in a record store. From a label perspective, have you guys, was there any impact there, or label or distribution? Well, we we at Red Eye, you know, we're obviously very invested in the, you know, the, the world that, that Carrie works in, the independent stores. From us, it's it, it more comes down to a stock availability issue. Obviously, if we're running marketing campaigns, be it social media advertising, you know, radio underwriting, whatever it may be, our goal is to drive people into the store and the the it's the restocking. It's, you know, if if the record comes out on Friday, the record store brings in five copies and those sell out by five o'clock on Friday, you know, the store is essentially going to be out of stock for the rest of the weekend and how many people came in over the weekend wanting to walk out of that store with the record and weren't able to do it. So it's, it, it's more of a sort of strategic thing for us, just making sure we're keeping record stores stocked with the records that we need. And, you know, vinyl, vinyl's a tricky product. And it's yeah. not returnable. So that's why stores aren't buying like 10 copies of something. Their stores have to be fairly conservative, especially with vinyl, because it isn't returnable. And, and you know, I'm going to buy five copies of something because I just don't know. I mean, there's 25 records coming out. I don't know which one's going to be the one. So I'm buying five. I'm being conservative. And, oh, my gosh, that NPR story was fantastic. And five people came in right away. And, uh, well, Red Eye's not working on Saturday, as you shouldn't. Sorry. But uh, I can't reorder it <laughs> until Monday. So I won't get it till Tuesday or Wednesday if I'm on – especially, you know, it, that, that becomes a really – Street date used to be a different day and they decided it was a Tuesday because that was a good day to have it. They worked it out. Like there's all these reasons why it was a Tuesday, but now it's a Friday. I worked in <laughs> record stores for 10 years before NPR and I can, that's all absolutely true. There would be often times when I was there at the very end of the Friday release date and it was just, there would be things like an NPR feature uh, on an artist that nobody knew about. So we would have ordered one or two copies and then Saturday, 10 people are asking for it, and we're just like, we didn't know about this until yesterday. Whereas Tuesday was great, because if we sold out on Tuesday, we could have more by Friday, and we'd be stocked for the weekend. And it just, it's a real bummer. On, on And record stores have so much, they have small budgets. Small record stores have small budgets, so they're not going to throw all their money at something that they can't return. It's, yeah, Friday's no good. Yeah, for a, while it, for a while it kind of weirdly felt like conspiracy. Like, oh, we're already, you know, <laughs> oh, having so much trouble. It definitely feels like a conspiracy. So thanks a lot. 
Yeah. Wait, is there, we're having a good attitude. Yes. Is there a push to move it back? I mean, if there's if it's that this you much, start a petition, Glenn. Well, I, I don't personally have a you know dog in the fight, but it does seem like you know. I will no make. The, I will from, make the t-shirts. In fact, there are t- there are store owners who have made t-shirts and wear them to every industry event. Okay. <laughs> they wear the t-shirts <laughs> and they make like a new Coke old Coke analogy and you can change it and all that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's a global business. And, and I, I really feel like it came down to a, a, a digital decision and, and that's fine. We're living with it. We're physical record stores. We're awesome, but we also have our own problems and quirks and we'll just deal with those as we have to. What's the the vinyl Tuesday? Is that still a That is. That was like That feels like a like we're we're trying to make an effort, but it's like here's some stuff you probably already have in a well, 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 here's here's the thing. Like we it, it's kind of a catch 22. Vinyl Tuesday is is an initiative that Record Store Day started for regular Tuesdays throughout the year where we again said, oh, "Hey, yeah. like maybe you don't have to release that on Friday when there are 25 other records. Why don't you put it on a Tuesday and we'll give it a lot of extra love. We created a hashtag and we, you know, we have a logo for Vinyl Tuesday and and it, it there are some Tuesdays where there are a lot. There are some major labels and some smaller labels. What should we we should talk, um, who <laughs> release things on Tuesday and they do end up getting more love. But if, if the world is being told new release Friday is Friday and everything's coming on Friday and everybody's going on Stephen Colbert and holding up the vinyl and saying in your record stores on Friday, mm-hmm. which we like, it's nice that they say that, but, and then you're saying, Oh, but you can get these three records on this Tuesday. There may not be something next Tuesday, but there might be something the following Tuesday. You know, it's, yeah, we created a hashtag. We've got that. It's good. Okay, Okay, I have another question unless someone else has one. First of all, my name is Glenn. I I work at Motorco and and played a role in in putting this together. Thank you, Glenn. Oh, sure. Uh, but but one of the things that's come up today, and, and one of the ideas behind this particular p- panel, Simon has mentioned, you know, again, the, the, the idea that the internet democratized releasing music. And I've listened to Portia's podcast to know that she, I, and I agree with her, that feels like you need a record label more today than than ever. Whereas there was a feeling years ago that, you know, when, when the internet c- came along, like, who needs a record label? You can do it yourself. And really, the idea behind this panel is I think a lot, when, when you say that, a lot of artists think releasing a record is literally, you know, manufacturing, recording it and manufacturing it. And they, and, you know, it's come to this panel that there's not a lot of thought to what happens after the release date, the marketing of that record. And I guess I just want to make sure, you know, we cover that, that there is a lot of, and again, this is where it's hard to turn this into a question, but all the core things that are needed to be done. Things that artists could be doing themselves now once they release a record, or things they should be aware of. I mean, you know, we mentioned you know being signed up with Sound Exchange and stuff like that. But you know, again, what I've seen in the past is you know bands you know manufacturing like a thousand records, getting them home, and then like, oh, now what do we do? And so the question is, what should they? From your perspective, what should they do? And that's directed to anyone who wants to answer it. Well, I, I mean, I, I think the first thing that I would say was I would certainly hope that you would put some sort of plan together before you ordered the thousand records to show up at your house. The digital and physical, you know, in some cases it feels somewhat divergent, but I think at Red Eye we try and consider those two formats to be closer 
and uh, you know proximity than than you would think. We like to see one serve the other. As a music buyer, I certainly buy a lot of vinyl records that I discover on Spotify or other streaming services. But I think you know you make a good point, Glenn, which is. You, okay, great. The records showed up. Here they are. And, you know, I have personally been in that circumstance where the records literally arriving at your doorstep and you go, oh, no, this is a lot of boxes that are going to take up a lot of room in my house. How do we put these in other people's houses one at a time? And, you know, it, it takes strategy. You know, I think, you know, a lot of what I talked about earlier on the pre-release was, was geared a little more towards the digital, but we certainly work with Carrie and Record Store Day for pre-order campaigns and things like that. We like to engage you know, the community, both at the indie store level and the direct to consumer level, and then street date sort of happens. And that's a big, you know, set up the fireworks. You know, we really love it when bands tour. It's a difficult prospect. And I know artists who are not of a certain level, it's tough. They have day jobs and there are certain things and, you know, do the long weekend tours, do whatever you can. You know, what else can you do? Is there a video asset that's going to come out after street date? Like dig deep, you know, what, what can you pull out of your pocket to keep fans engaged in that release and that set of songs in the long run? I mean, you know, after street day, you should work a record up until the day you announce your next record and be of that mindset, you know, because if you treat street date like a finish line, well, you can imagine how that's going to go. And, you know, it, you have to get creative and you have to really think about the long term. And there's no there's no playbook for that. You know, we, we see people do all kinds of really interesting concepts. But, you know, I think the basics are touring, video assets, social media. Carrie's got one for us here. Oh, no, I was I was just going to say that I think, you know, 10 years ago when when democracy exploded on the Internet in terms of releasing your own records and we don't need the labels and that sort of thing. And I understand where that attitude came from, because for a long time and probably for, a, you know, a long time to come, the image of the record label was, you know, the executive off experiencing hookers and blow while the artist is not getting any money. And that's not where are my hookers and blow. Well, I was just going to say that's, that's later. That is un, that that aspect probably happened. I was not there for it, but there's a lot of people who have always worked really hard and didn't get the credit for doing the things that have to be done to put a record out. And I think it's only now when people have been trying to do it themselves, all of it themselves, that they're learning. And, and it's why places like Reverb Nation and Kickstarter with the, you know, Kickstarter isn't just having people give you money to make your project. It's also, you know, they have a, a program where they're gonna help you get the vinyl made. And, and that's, invaluable to a band who's like, I, I make really good music. I want to make a record and I've got, you know, 500 people who are going to buy this record. How do I make a record? Well, there would have been somebody to teach you how to do that or do it for you on a label. And now these places exist where you can do it. But, but at some level you have to realize too, okay, I'm, I'm getting this made getting the record made, but somebody has to talk to all the radio stations and tell them it exists. And somebody has to talk to Spotify and all those other places and try and get it on their playlists. And somebody has to book the shows and somebody has to tell all the newspapers that were coming and that this is happening and we have to fight and find somebody who's got relationships so that we can get on Stephen Colbert as opposed to the 27 other people who want to get on Stephen Colbert that day. And all that stuff is really hard and it's been being done by people all along. And I think now is when people are realizing, oh, it, it is a team effort. It's not 
just making the record and it does happen before the record comes out and after the record comes out and record release parties are really fun but they're not it there's stuff to do after that and i i think these services and and even the podcast telling people what has to happen for this artifact to exist is just fantastic and i hope people pay attention to all the parts of it because it's not easy well, Carrie's pretty much said it all, but I do think the one takeaway we could get from this whole entire episode is don't make 1,000 vinyl copies of your record <laughs> without <laughs> a plan. Right, right. Like, just don't do that. But don't have you them have shipped no to your house. no idea how many boxes that is. You really don't. <laughs> Not good. You know, what we're talking about right now is kind of part of the hidden, you know, behind the scenes aspect of what a record company is. And I think... I think every few years there's a, there's a, an example, you know, I mean, 10 years ago it was clap your hands, say, yeah, you know, that band came out, put their own record out and it went, went crazy. But, and, and, and thought, well, it's, you know, it's like winning the lottery. They won the lottery and everyone else thought they could win it as well. But, you know, if you date, go back, I mean, Fugazi was doing that or, you know, they're not the only example, but uh, anyway, I just wanted to make sure we covered that. But the other, so the last question I have, which is, again, I don't know if I can turn this into a question, well, it's a question I have specifically, but I, I'm going to date myself a little bit in asking it. So basically, again, my background, I used to work for record companies in the 90s, and, uh, and my first job was doing college radio promotion. And I used to always argue that the setup period was the most important time of a record, because you haven't heard this record. My job is to make you want to hear it, you know? And I can think of, like, there's this band, I don't know if anyone knows this band called The Senseless Things that I worked with, and I just remember that particular record, depending on who I was talking to, I would describe them differently. To some people, they sound like the Buzzcocks. To other people, they sound like Soul Asylum. To some people, they sound like Ned's Atomic Dustbin, because I'm trying to, and again, I'm really dating myself when I drop Ned's Atomic Dustbin, but the, but the idea is to make you want to hear the record. You know, I'm trying to put it into terms that you're, you want, because I, I was of the opinion that once you've heard it and made up your mind, there's no going back, you know? And like a recent example of that, there's an article going around on Facebook right now about the Strokes' first record. There's a big article or book coming out about that. And I didn't like that record when it came out, and I listened to it recently, and I'm like, no, I still don't like it. Like, I've made up my mind. It's really hard to go back, you know? But it seems today a lot of the marketing, and maybe I'm wrong. This is really why the question is more specific to me. A lot of marketing, and I'm directing this kind of at Hank, because you were talking about this, is we're marketing with the music itself like the the music is being either dropped you know either on spotify or on, on a band's website and that seems to be the introduction of, of a band versus again going back to you know the, the, what i'm talking about which was you know me trying to convince a gatekeeper like a radio programmer but also you had a lot of like press you know you read something in the press about a record like you know hey sleater kenny's got a new record wow, that sounds interesting. You know, there's excitement. And I'm just wondering on the marketing side, am I right? Are we marketing with the music now? And, and is that working? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we talked a little bit about the, you know, the concept of going out with multiple pre-release singles. Well, you don't want to essentially go out with three singles to sound exactly the same, right? We're going to go out with a up-tempo and a down-tempo and try and hit people where their ears are. You know, I think the the concept of the gatekeeper, you know, be it the 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 MD at the radio station, you know, it's like, well, in 2017, we're all gatekeepers, right? We all have playlists, you know, we have a certain, very, maybe very granular, but we have a sense of power. If I add a song to a playlist, I've affected the, you know, unseen algorithm for that song at Spotify and, you know, 
pushed it up just a little bit. And if Carrie does the same, well, there it went up a little bit. And if you then, Glenn, you do the same. And if enough people take that action, Spotify goes, oh, there's some traction behind this song. Oh, maybe we should add this to one of our feeder playlists. And if it does, you know, and, and like, you know, there's, there's not the concept of gatekeeper, but I think, yes, I mean, we're, we're essentially marketing the music. That's, that's the business that we're in and we're going out and we're trying to get as far out in front of releases and put our best foot forward. And, you know, I think I can't remember. Somebody said it earlier. If you don't do anything else, write a great song. Oh, okay. Sammy gets credit for that one. But yeah, there's, there's truth in that. You can have the best marketing team and the biggest budget behind you, but if your song's a stinker at the end of the day, your song's a stinker. And you know, you can push it and we you know, Top Forty Radio came up earlier today and just just hang out there for about thirty minutes and try not to, you know, throw yourself in front of a bus. You know, there's an amazing world of music out there and there are people that want to listen to it and you know, there's some truth to what you said, you know making different pitches, using digital advertising, running multiple ads that are speaking to different audiences, you know, go after different targeted sets with your ads, you know, maybe it's, you know, a little older demographic here, a little younger, like write your ad copy a little bit different. See if you can sort of come at a release in a different way to attract a different listener. But yeah, it's, it's all about the music at the end of the day. And, you know, if you feel like you've got a great product, figure out how to get people to listen to it. Because if you can get somebody to put their ears on it they're going to make that decision and again if it's not a stinker hopefully you win a fan so we're running pretty late but we it looks like we have a couple more questions i just wanted to share an anecdote i'm a composer i did the academic thing about as far as you could go and so i i consider myself a champion of the written music and I remember a seminar in which we were all meeting with a professor of ours dr brant this was at rice in houston and he once chuckled and he said, you know, I, I, I laugh at, at, the degree, at the point at which I thought finished was. You know, I used to think that finished was the double bar line. Like you have this piece of paper and you finish the piece and you draw the double bar line, you're like, it's done. Oh, no, 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 no. That's where it begins. The championing process of your own music forward with whomever you send it to, whomever you get it recorded, however you then take that music into the world, now that it's quote unquote finished, the process is only beginning. And so it, it comes back to the music, but it, it comes back to being the champion of one's sound, of one's piece, of one's voice, and, and bringing uh, forth people and a team to help you as the creator of that sound bring that into the world successfully. So I appreciate the discussion. I'm looking forward to more of it, but I just, I just wanted to share that about the idea of the finished product. But thank you. Thanks. All right, well, I would like to thank everybody who is on video. Thank you guys so much for sticking around. Everyone on my panel, look out.
That was Animated GIFs by Boats. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard New Dog, Milagres, Boats, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.